I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Columbia University cancer researcher and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee is deeply involved in COVID-19 response strategies. For this episode of Q&A, we spent an hour with him talking about many aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. Of all of the decades that I've been involved in chasing infectious diseases, I've never seen anything that is so protean in its ability to make people sick or not. There's no other infectious disease that goes from 40% of the people having no symptoms to some having mild symptoms, to some having severe, some requiring staying at home for weeks, some going to the hospital, some getting intensive care, some getting intubated, some getting ventilated, and some dying. So that depending on where you are in that spectrum, you have a different attitude to this particular thing. But anyone who gets infected or is at risk of getting infected, to a greater or lesser degree, is part of the dynamic process of the outbreak. That is Dr. Anthony Fauci describing the various outcomes so far of COVID-19. Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize for a book that on cancer that proclaimed it the emperor of all maladies. How is COVID-19 shaping up as a biological foe? But as, as uh, Dr. Fauci described it, um, it is a protean foe. Um, we, there is, you know, we are just uh, in, in the long span of, of human history, we have just basically encountered this uh, novel coronavirus. Um, and we're still learning things about it, which are really uh, fascinating, somewhat counterintuitive, things that we hadn't thought about before. I should tell you that um, I'm an oncologist, uh, but really my training, my PhD, is in viral immunology. So um, the features of virology are very familiar to me. And just I would echo Dr. Fauci's uh, opinion on this. Uh, I, in my lifetime, I've seen you know influenza pandemics move by. Um, I saw from a distance um, uh, SARS. I worked on on influenza for a long time um, as a graduate student. I have never seen anything like this. The, 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 the strange features of this of this virus are um, are truly something that are out of the ordinary. How does its strange features complicate our ability to conquer it? Well, let's let's talk about some of these strange features. The first uh, strange feature is uh, the uh, the vast degree of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic carriers. So, uh, you know, you might be walking in the community. And um, and there might be someone who, uh, in, in a closed space or in a closed environment, who's not really symptomatic, but is carrying the virus. Um, they may get symptomatic days after, so there's a pre-symptomatic period. Some of them don't even have, they have extraordinarily mild symptoms. Um, and so that makes it extra- extremely challenging because you can't simply isolate and contact trace these people based on symptoms, since they don't seem to have symptoms, or they may be pre-symptomatic. Um, and that means that the only thing that will work if you're in close proximity with them in a closed, crowded space, the only thing that will really work is masking and social distancing. So that's one feature. The second feature is uh, we don't know uh, what the relationship is between why some people seem to get infected and some people don't seem to get infected. 
Um, there have been uh, now a series of extraordinary reports. I mean, the, the one that struck me the most um, was the, it was a report uh, that I, it's still in preprint, but I read from a cruise uh, that went to the Antarctic. Um, so uh, on that cruise, um, one person was infected to start with. Um, they were isolated to the best of their ability, but unfortunately, the virus is extremely contagious and it spread. And if I'm, I'm, I'm remembering the numbers correctly, 60% of the people on the cruise got infected. But here's what's very interesting about it. There were couples sharing the same room um, in which one couple, one of the couple was infected while the other one was not infected. So in a closed, crowded space, um, for reasons that we still don't understand, um, we have now evidence or accumulating evidence that some of this may have to do with previously existing cross-reactive uh, immunity against other coronaviruses possibly. That may be one explanation, but that's probably not the only explanation. There are probably other explanations as to why um, some people seem to be exposed but not infected. So that's conundrum two. Conundrum three is how much virus is, is required to, um, to have an infection. So I wrote... Um, uh, a piece in the New Yorker, which I would encourage people to read, called How Coronavirus Behaves Within the Patient. Um, we don't know whether there's a relation for, for many viruses, um, including influenza, and for many respiratory viruses, there's a relationship between the dose of virus that you receive and, of course, the chance that you will get infected, and also potentially the severity of the disease that you have, because it's a dynamic battle between your immune system and the amount of viral load exposure that you're getting, which is, again, to emphasize why it's important to, redu to reduce that viral load and to reduce the viral load, as I said, masking, social distancing, and, and, and the three Cs, you know, closed spaces, avoid closed spaces, avoid close contact, avoid crowds. The three Cs are extraordinarily important. So that's yet another conundrum. Now let's get to the fact uh, when the virus is actually in your body, um, it, of course, affects the lungs. We knew that. It's a respiratory virus. Um, it seems that the virus has, the infection really has two phases. Um, phase one of the infection is when the infection is being driven primarily by the, by the viral infection itself. Uh, this is when your lung epithelium cells are being destroyed. And, you know, you may have a fever. You may have uh, chills and, uh, you know, the famous loss of smell, loss of taste, loss of appetite, uh, etc. But then that moves in some patients, but not in all, and we don't know why, in some patients, particularly men, it moves towards the second phase of the infection where the pathology is being driven by the exuberant or at least a, an immune response uh, to the virus uh, and to dead cells uh, that are accumulating. And that phase is very dangerous because your air sacs which is where air exchange occurs, uh, fill up with uh, immunological debris, uh, debris from dead cells, um, and fluid uh, inflammatory uh, consequences of the virus. So um, why this virus behaves in these two phases, whereas some other viruses don't, again, a, a mystery. Uh, if I may carry on, there's two or three other mysteries I'd like to highlight. Sure. Um, um, then comes the question about what else does the virus infect? So it turns out that the receptor that the virus uses um, on human cells has now been established. 
Um, we don't know if there are co-receptors. Certain viruses do have co-receptors, but at least a major receptor has been identified. Um, the virus, for reasons that we don't understand, causes a diffuse set of symptoms. Um, so I will name some some of these symptoms. In children, it causes a, in a small number of children, it causes a, a, an autoimmune disease of the blood vessels uh, and the arteries, a very similar to a disease called Kawasaki's arteritis. Uh, why this virus is causing a Kawasaki's-like syndrome, we don't know, but now, uh, as of yesterday, there was a big case report uh, of all these children. It also causes what has become very clear, a, a state in which your blood tends to clot more. Um, this blood clotting can lead to strokes. It can lead to cardiac uh, attacks. It can lead to um, uh, 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 basically uh, blood clots being sprayed varies in various parts of the body, um, uh, including the lungs, where it can be life-threatening. Um, and then, just to make one last point, um, we still don't know what the long-term sequelae of infections are uh, uh, in people who survive. So, let's say you do recover, hopefully, from the coronavirus infection, and, um, and let's say you have a severe infection, um, we don't know um, what the long-term sequelae are. I mean, our, you know, people are finding kidney problems, uh, arthritis problems. Some of these may or may not be related. Some of them may be related to the fact that they were in the ICU. Um, so I've just given you right from, uh, you know, uh, exposure right up to the end of the disease, a series of, of uh, truly um, uh, interesting, or, and I would say uh, devastating, um, things that we just don't understand. We're beginning to understand some of it. As I said, I gave you some clues about uh, what we're understanding, what we're not understanding. Um, and in each, as we understand each of these phases, it's important to recall that different interventions will work in different phases. So obviously, once you are in the ICU, it's uh, the healthcare workers that need to be protected from you um, in terms of uh, viral exposure. But uh, depending on what phase of the infection you're in, whether you're in the so-called virological phase in which you have uh, exuberant burst of viruses, or whether you're in this inflammatory immunological phase, in fact, the medicines that work for one don't seem to work for the other. So antivirals such as remdesivir and now new antibody cocktails uh, from several companies um, work or are likely to work, and we know they work in based on good trial data, in that first phase of the infection when you want to kill the virus, but seem to have no effect whatsoever in the second phase uh, when you have that inflammatory response. And there it's anti-inflammatories um, such as steroids and, and uh, you know, a bunch of other medicines uh, that, that seem to work, whereas the antivirals don't seem to be doing very much in that phase. Um, I would say that we, we are involved in two or three projects uh, to address both phases of, of this uh, of this infection. So as complicated as this is, uh, it sounds like really only time, lots of experimentation, and a lot of information sharing is really the key to uh, understanding and really uh, attacking this disease. Yes, and, and ultimately I should say that, um, you know, this, it, we, it, this is, this, uh, I have not seen a level of uh, collaborative spirit within the scientific community um, of this ilk or stature in my life. That's very encouraging news. Um, things have moved fa as fast as 
they can possibly move. We will have, uh, hopefully, by the end of this month, two to three to maybe four potential drugs, including antibodies, that will attack the virus. These are still in advanced phase studies, so I can't comment on whether they work or not or which uh, or, or what settings they work on. Um, and we will also have about four or five or six um, new modalities to treat the uh, inflammatory phase of the virus, including, as I said, steroids, but also um, uh, uh, protein-based drugs. And in, in my case, um, you know, our, we are exper exper experimenting with a special kind of T-cell which can dampen this immune response called a regulatory T-cell. So um, this is moving as fast as we can. Of course, we will have to wait uh, for the vaccine. And uh, optimistically, I think most people think that that will take about 18, 18 months. So focusing on the United States, we're, we're talking at the very end of June here. And at this moment, there are 2.64 million known cases in the United States, 128,000 deaths. And as we've all seen on the news, deaths are on the rise as, excuse me, cases are on the rise in as many as 29 states. So overall, how would you assess the state of the United States response to this virus? Well, I think the, um, again, I would encourage people to read a very long piece uh, uh, dissecting some of this that I wrote for The New Yorker uh, called What Coronavirus Is Exposed About American Medicine, um, uh, where I go through piece by piece by piece every step of the response. Um, I think it, it is, um, uh, despite best efforts, I, I must say that the, uh, the initial response in the United States was abjectly problematic. Um, I, I cannot describe to you um, the um, what might have happened if we had taken faster and more decisive action against the, the virus when we knew that the that, that there was a pandemic brewing in uh, China, and when we knew that the that uh, cases were already spreading into parts of Europe, including Spain and Italy. Um, crucial mistakes were made during that time. If you, you know, I'll just give you two examples. One example was um, uh, one example uh, it was uh, the the lack of testing you, uh, in the early phases. Now it's extremely late, uh, but in the early phases, testing and isolation, the strategy that worked in Wuhan and, and now more recently in Beijing, um, should have worked and would have worked if the number of cases had been low. There was a 42-day delay. Uh, I'm going to repeat that. There was a 42-day delay from the day that the first coronavirus uh, patient uh, appeared in a hospital in uh, near Seattle in Washington State uh, to the day that uh, commercial testing for the virus became available. 42 days in the lifespan of a highly contagious virus is may as well be a century because by that time people have taken flights people have moved all around the united states and the sparks of the original virus uh, were spread all over that's one example the second example is that the um, cdc and other authorities made what i think was a crucial error in not asking people to isolate mask and uh, and maintain social distancing as soon as uh, you know, even while those tests were being uh, uh, made. And secondly, in particular, particular tragedy is that we were desperately unprepared, not just for testing, isolation, quarantine, 
but also to give healthcare workers in particular and frontline workers the really protective masks, the PPE masks, uh, or the N95, uh, sorry, not the PPE, but the N95 masks, uh, which truly do protect against the small aerosol particles. And healthcare workers were in particular need of them. We've seen many healthcare workers die uh, in this pandemic. Um, and I, I, feel, I feel extraordinarily sorry for them. But at the same time, uh, encouraging the public to avoid the three C's against, again, crowds, close contacts, close spaces, um, um, and wearing uh, masks and potentially eye protective equipment early in the course of the pandemic and mandating that um, would have been a, a successful solution. We have now, um, I would say, strong to sufficient data uh, to suggest that that strategy works. Of course, it does not work 100%. No one expects it to work 100%. But, but in, 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 vi- in virology and in epidemiology, the reduction of spread of a virus from one person infecting five people to one person infecting less than one person, uh, in other words, driving the infectious uh, spread, the, uh, is of great consequence. So you, you don't need a strategy to work 100%. All you need to do is to decrease that famous number called the R0 or the R0. Um, which is which is crucial. I'm going to make one last point here, and that's very important. There, the 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 two pieces of good news is that the number of deaths in the United States has actually tapered off and and is plateauing, and in fact is showing signs of decrease. I don't know why. It's a, again a mystery. Uh, is it because we are seeing um, this is the absolute number? Um, so um, I don't know why. Maybe we are taking better care of patients, earlier care of patients. There's more awareness. Maybe there's less viral load spreading, again, because of masking, etc. So the number of deaths has decreased. But as you, as you know very well, in places like Houston and Dallas, in Florida, um, in Arizona, the number of cases is increasing. And uh, this is... Most data would suggest that some of that is because we're doing more testing. Of course, if you test more, you'll find more. But uh, a majority of data suggests that it's also um, because the infection is, in fact, increasing in its spread. So I would not, I would not rest on laurels, uh, although there is good news. I would not rest on laurels. I would, I would continue to watch because the, the wave of deaths usually is about two to three weeks after the wave of infections. So you've mentioned masks several times. I want to show you a clip from very recently in a congressional hearing of a debate between the chairman and a member about the wearing of masks. Let's watch. We have to be consistent. And if you say, Green, I want you to wear a mask, sir, I'll wear a mask. You're the chairman of my committee. But I want us to to make decisions based on sound data and information. Thank you, sir. Will you yield for a question? Yes, sir, I will. Are you arguing that we should not meet in person? Uh, no, no, sir, not at all. I that think sounds this like the arguments you're making to me. No, I don't. I because don't. of all, because there's no certainty, the mask may not work, but we know how the disease is transmitted. So if the mask has such a low probability of working, maybe we ought not be meeting in person. If, if you're asking my clinical opinion, sir, Yes. My opinion is, is that patients who are in high risk categories, uh, patients? Those age, 
people, individuals, sure, anyone who's 65 years or older uh, uh, who has comorbidities should wear a mask. If you don't, I'm telling people in Tennessee it's not required. So the unmasked member of Congress is also a doctor, the chairman. Uh, is wearing a mask. But my question for you is this debate over wearing masks is happening in the halls of Congress. Are we surprised that people nationally are uh, at odds about wearing a mask or not? Well, I mean, I'm disappointed um, in the sense that I I don't understand what the I don't I I really, really have a hard time understanding why this is uh, uh, such a major issue. Um, The questions asked by both sides in that debate, I don't know that the people were absurd questions. The first question is, are you suggesting that we stop meeting? No one's suggesting that you stop meeting. People are suggesting that if, if you, when you meet and if you can, then wear a mask while that meeting is in progress. You can communicate through a mask with perfect uh, fidelity. It's not the most comfortable thing, but, but you know, being infected by a deadly virus and ending, ending up in the ICU is not the most comfortable thing either. So, um, so the, 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 the line of questioning is absurd. The second thing that's absurd about the line of questioning is that we cannot run a randomized trial of masks versus not masks, although some have been, have been run. Uh, but right now, we cannot run easily a randomized trial of so asking, you know, sequestering half the population, asking them to wear masks and asking the other not to wear masks for lots of reasons, some ethical and some uh, logistic. The overwhelming um, evidence in the scientific literature suggests that masks work. They do not work 100%. But as I said, in order to reduce the the rate of infection from this virus, you don't need anything to work 100%. You need to decrease the so-called R-naught of the virus, which is the amount of virus that is spread from one person to another and the amount of contagion that's spread. And so... Um, so the second absurdity, in the, I mean, if you make absurd uh, straw men, then it's very easy to throw them down. Uh, if you say, well, you know, masks don't work 100 percent, so I'm not going to wear one. That's making an absurd straw man of a mask. Um, it is it is again. The idea is to decrease the the load of infection by a person who's symptomatic or pre-symptomatic. And it is amplified by the fact that what the, the wearer who may not be infected is also protected. So, um, so if you ask absurd questions um, and say masks don't work 100%, should we stop meeting? Uh, this is not the mechanism of, of respiratory spread, all of which are factually incorrect. Um, then you'll get absurd answers. We should have a consistent, simple, mandated policy. Um, and I would encourage, I have encouraged over and over again, the president to lead on this. Uh, we should have, have a simple policy that applies across um, and governors should apply that policy because we have a still uh, a long way to go before this epidemic um, abates. Um, And the last thing that we want to do is to have inconsistencies um, between people about this. And again, you know, the, the, to me, especially the, uh, the, the, um, the, the troubles that you have to go through to, to mask yourself in a closed, crowded space where you're having contact um, is pretty minimal um, compared to a potential gain. And sometimes we have to make decisions on 
based on evidence that is, uh, you know, in which in, where the uh, where the encumbrance to the patient or to the user is minimal and the potential gain is uh, is there and 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 maybe quite large. Um, we err on the side of caution, and this is one example uh, of erring on the side of caution. We wear seatbelts. We require licensure. Uh, there are many things where, where we could say, "Gosh, you know, a seatbelt is a is is a you know is an affront to my to my liberty. I'm not going to wear a seatbelt." But we have mandated the wearing of seatbelts, um, and so um, similarly, I don't think it's 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 a far stretched. Um, to mandate the wearing of, of masks. And of course, if you have a medical condition that doesn't allow you to wear a mask for whatever reason, then uh, you, know, you may be an exception to that. So the states where the incidence rates are rising are generally the states that have opened up their societies. I know you're serving on Governor Cuomo's uh, c- commission on reopening the economy in New York State. Uh, can you talk to us about New York City and what, uh, as it opens up, and how you prevent it from becoming... Uh, like uh, uh, Houston, or worse, like Beijing has experienced? Well, again, I, I think what's going to happen in, in the best case scenario that, that I think in, will happen in New York City is that we will open in phases and watch every phase. Um, the, uh, the good news right now is that I think to the extent possible, phase one is going well. I was just outside Virtually every person who's entering a store is wearing a mask. Um, uh, the uh, there is uh, uh, there is there is a legal immunity uh, for a store worker to uh, deny um, a, a person not wearing a mask entry to that store if that person uh, if that store owner should so decide. Um, there is um, uh, I, I would say that after. A very long period of time, we're seeing a dramatic decrease in deaths in, for instance, in our uh, ICUs. Um, work is slowly resuming. Um, I think the way to, to move forward is to next ask the question, at what phase uh, are, are we safe um, opening, um, you know, the particular concerns are schools, restaurants and bars. Um, I would say that we have a three month window. Uh, a very crucial three-month window when schools, public schools, will be naturally closed and private schools will be naturally closed. Um, it is during this window of time when I think uh, we have to act very decisively and to bring that R not down to as low as possible. What will happen at the end of that period is very much, I think, what has happened in places like Beijing and to some extent South Korea. There will be local outbreaks. Um, there will be local outbreaks because you can never predict, uh, you know, where things are coming from. Uh, those local outbreaks will have to be contained using a combination of uh, isolation, contact tracing, and potentially the use of medicines, prophylactic medicines, to prevent, uh, you know, the virus from growing exponentially and prevent people from from expelling that virus. Um, into into other people's uh, uh, respiratory systems. I would add that New York New York has a particular special challenge, which many cities don't, which is that we have a very busy subway system, and uh, we have to keep the subway system as the lifeblood of the city. Uh, we have to keep that subway system open. We have to keep it functioning, and the only way to keep that subway system open and functioning again is masking, 
hand hygiene and limiting the number of people that can, you know, limiting the crowds of people that are coming in. So it's a, it's a long road ahead. Uh, phase one is moving as well as it could. It, there has not been a gigantic spike in New York City so far, and certainly not a spike in deaths. Um, so uh, phase two is going to be a big challenge, but we're moving towards it. I wanted to spend a little bit of time on genes and COVID-19. Uh, folks will see your, your book over your shoulder, and uh, you recently finished a project with Ken Burns on PBS about the gene. Um, how ha- was the quick a decoding of COVID-19's genome, uh, how did it advance our understanding of the disease? Well, it was absolutely crucial because without the genome, uh, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 swab test is based on the COVID-19 genome. Uh, it, is, it uses COVID-19's genome to figure out uh, how to test because essentially it is detecting uh, the RNA from the virus uh, in the secretions, either from the nose or from from the oropharynx, it's secreting secretions from the virus. So, um, so without that genome, we could not have devised a test. It was impossible. That 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 technology itself relies on genetic technologies that have uh, appeared, you know, over the last uh, decade or two decades, I would say. And it was one of the fastest genomes to be sequenced, um, and therefore led to the tests. Uh, secondly, the um, Production of um, uh, virtually all the uh, the uh, the uh, antibodies um, against COVID nineteen relies on genetic engineering technology. So, if you want to make an antibody to against the spike protein of COVID nineteen, which is the protein that the virus uses to attach itself to cells, um, so that you can block that attachment and potentially create an antiviral drug, produ- the production of that antibody requires recombinant DNA technology and other technologies that depend on the last, I would say, 50 years of genetic research. Um, and finally, um, it, you know, to determine why some patients are more susceptible than others, uh, why, what the receptor that the virus attaches to in the cell, why we are having complications uh, such as the ones that I told you, the, uh, the, the, the blood clotting complications, etc. All of these require population genetics and uh, widespread uh, genetic technologies. So there is no, I cannot think of one arena of uh, virology for COVID, starting from the antibody tests, contact tracing, all the way to the production of new medicines for, as I said, both the phases, the virological phase and the inflammatory phase of the virus I cannot think of any uh, one of those uh, which has not been affected or not been progressed by the 50-odd years uh, during which time we've been looking and examining and understanding how genes work and how to sequence them and how to understand them. I'm sure people have read that, that viruses can mutate. So how do, how do researchers keep up with those mutations? But again, we use genetic technologies. We sequence the virus um, and we I try to identify what the mutations are. Uh, you can use the sequence of the virus to figure out where the strain is coming from. You know, is it a European strain? Is it the Asian strain? Is it the American strain? Is it the Spanish strain? So, um, so again, once again, you use the technologies that have uh, really emerged from uh, the last 50 years of genetic sequencing. Is... Um 
you talked about therapeutic medicines. Is this, the understanding of the gene also useful in developing a vaccine? Uh, uh, absolutely. It is, in fact, crucial to the development of the vaccine. Um, uh, I would encourage people, again, to read. I don't want to push things that I write, but uh, those, are the, those are the ones that I'm most familiar with. There are many, many pieces on the COVID vaccine that, that, that should be read. But um, vaccines come in various types. Um, one type is just to inactivate the virus, so to make the virus and inactivate it and inject the whole inactivated virus. Uh, those vaccines are hard to make. Uh, they're hard to scale, I should say. They're easy to make, but they're hard to scale to hundreds of millions, uh, up to billions of doses, because you're working in order to produce them. You first have to produce a live virus. Um, and even if you make the, if, even if you weaken the virus, uh, which was done in the case of polio, um, you run the risk of some patients getting infected by the virus because the inactivation hasn't been, hasn't been completed or there's a batch problem. So uh, that depends less on genetic uh, or genetic engineering technologies. Uh, but all the new generations of vaccines that we're producing are basically dependent on genetic technologies. And I'll tell you some of them. Um, there is um, one platform for making vaccines that depends on taking uh, some COVID proteins and stitching them genetically into the backbone of a harmless virus uh, that causes a common cold but doesn't, uh, doesn't replicate in your cells. It's, again, using genetics. That virus has been mostly inactivated aside from being just a delivery vehicle to carry COVID proteins into the cell and make the body react and make antibodies against it. So, so that's a platform. And in fact, um, the virus is made by, uh, you know, the virus is in trial by uh, Oxford University, by J&J, um, and by several other companies uh, use this technology um, uh, to deliver the viral protein into the cells. There's a third platform for viruses. I'm not going to go through all of them for vaccines. Um, which, in fact, dispenses of the virus completely and uses just the, uh, uh, just the RNA uh, uh, from the, the virus, that is the genome of the virus or a part of the genome of the virus, coats it with something uh, to deliver it into cells. Um, and then uh, that is the basis of the Moderna vaccine, uh, which is also in, in advanced phase trials. So um, as you can see, all three of these technologies, aside from the live inactivated or attenuated viral strategy, the modern vaccines are cleaner, easier to produce, safer, um, and they all depend on genetic engineering technologies that have emerged from the last uh, 50 years. I should say I was a student and, and a, still a close friend of Paul Berg's, uh, who won the Nobel Prize uh, uh, for figuring out how to stitch uh, two pieces of DNA, a, a harmless virus, and a piece of the COVID uh, virus that will not cause the infection, but will elicit an immune response. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to know Paul because these technologies that were invented in the 1970s and 1980s have now become commonplace. They're usable, widely usable, and they can be used to make uh, uh, these vaccines. So um, it, is a, it is a proud moment for, for science uh, if we make a vaccine 
in this new way, this new genetic vaccine. You recently moderated a panel that brought people from a number of different disciplines together for The New York Times. Uh, what did you learn by that through that conversation? Well, I think, that, so let me just uh, remind you of who was on the panel. Uh, it, so um, um, I, I uh, moderated and led the panel. Um, Peggy Hamburg, or uh, Margaret Hamburg, Dr. Hamburg, was um, uh, the former uh, FDA commissioner. Um, Dan Baruch, uh, Dr. Dan Baruch, I should say doctor for everyone because everyone is a, a PhD and an MD or an MD-PhD. Um, Dan Baruch is a, a, a vaccinologist, a virologist at Harvard, um, and is one of the leaders of the production of one of these uh, genetically modified vaccines. Um, George Yankopoulos um, is the uh, head of uh, a, a company called Regeneron, which is uh, has taken the lead in making therapeutic antibodies against uh, COVID-19 and just published a major uh, paper in, in science showing that at least in animal uh, models uh, that it works. Dr. Susan Weiss um, is a coronavirus expert. She's worked on all coronaviruses um, and uh, has been uh, for years involved in, in uh, uh, coronavirus research. Uh, did I miss someone? Uh, Dr. Hamburg, Dr. Weiss, Dr. Yankopoulos, Dan Baruch, and me, it was five people. Um, well, the, the, the important thing, I think, that we learned from that, uh, there were many, many important uh, pieces of information. So I would really encourage people to read it. Everyone had an important perspective in, in, in all of this. Um, I think there are two messages that stand out, or I should say there are three messages that stand out. Um, one is that it, a vac vaccines don't magically appear out of nowhere. They take time to develop, and the safety bar for vaccines is extraordinarily high because we're giving the vaccine to people who are otherwise um, not, um, uh, who are otherwise well. So uh, the, the safety bar is enormous. Um, there is a uh, there is a, a big anti-vaxer. Um, uh, universe um, and there's a lot of suspicion about vaccines uh, which is all the more reason to make sure that once the vaccine uh, does appear and is proven to be safe and is safe uh, that we actually uh, vaccinate people against this deadly, uh, deadly disease. Um, the second thing that we learned is that because there is some time, most people say, you know, 16 months, 18 months, 12 months, you know, if everything goes well, everything goes on schedule, uh, we have to do something in the meanwhile. Well, what do we do in the meanwhile? It brings us right back to where we started. We mask, we isolate, we protect, we open, uh, we do not be, we are, we are, we try to persuade our governors not to be cavalier, um, as I think uh, many governors have been, and thereby responsible for an increase in hospitalizations and potential deaths. Um, being cavalier about a lethal, deadly, infectious disease is, you know, these people, uh, these governors should really answer for themselves. What is the evidence that allowed them to be as cavalier as they were in opening up, for instance, uh, bars, restaurants, and other closed, crowded spaces where, where infection was inevitable? Um, so I'm, I'm extraordinarily, extraordinarily disappointed 
in the cavalier quality that many of these uh, politicians took uh, to do this as opposed to opening in a phase-wise manner. But what do we do during this time? As you talked about, we, uh, we uh, go through protection measures, but also we invent medicines. We don't have a vaccine, but we potentially can invent medicines. We can put those medicines in trials. Those medicines include antivirals such as remdesivir. Uh, it's not a great drug, at least uh, up to now, but it does work. Um, and um, is now being moved into further trials, combining it and making it into a cocktail so that uh, potentially the drugs will work. Uh, the antibodies we just said uh, are not vaccines. These are antibodies, man-made antibodies that give you, you know, one-month immunity potentially and may be uh, able to treat uh, the early phase of the viral infection. Those are being con made and are in advanced uh, trials Today, I just saw that Regeneron went into a phase three trial. Uh, Eli Lilly and a company called Veer are also in a phase one, phase two, moving into a phase three trial. Um, what are the medicines work? Well, there are medicines um, such as a um, uh, drugs that will uh, block the uh, immunological response. Um, in fact, I'm involved in two or three such efforts. Um, one is to elicit um, a company that that uh, that actually uh, co-founded uh, has we, we found a mechanism to elicit a brisk T cell response against uh, COVID-19, and that is in in trial early trials at Duke University. Uh, that's a company called Myeloid. Uh, another one that I collaborate with um, uses regulatory T cells. Uh, these are T cells to dampen the immune response. Uh, this is a company called. Selenkos, um, and um, and finally uh, there is um, there are new drugs such as uh, tocilizumab and a drug from Cuba called etolizumab. Um, uh, and I should say that I, um, for full disclosure, um, I'm collaborating with the um, and an advisor to uh, the the, the uh, for etolizumab um, again in trial for the inflammatory phase. Uh, of, of the of the, of the virus. So that's the second thing that one learned that this is not a time to sit back and relax. Um, this is a time to actively put into trial medicines that uh, we have invented or others have invented uh, it, it, that work or potentially can work uh, on COVID. Um, the the final and the third thing that we learned is that having a va vaccine is useless. Being vaccinated is useful. And that means, and this was a point brought up by Dr. Hamburg, that means that it is that there is a fourth phase after you finish developing a vaccine, getting that vaccine out to people uh, safely and at wide uh, widespread distribution is itself a mammoth logistic task. Um, you know, questions like, you know, does the vaccine have to be frozen? Does can it be shipped in uh, in a dry form? What is the formulation? Uh, how many doses are required? Will it protect the elderly? You know, if you do all your trials in young people and then find out that the most susceptible people don't raise a good immune response against it, then the vaccine is not going to be that useful. So there is an entire uh, backstory, as it were, of not just developing any vaccine, but developing and deploying that vaccine and actually vaccinating people um, in large numbers to be able to 
get to the point that you want to get to. Well, on that last point, uh, let me bring two voices in on the manufacture and distribution, and then we'll uh, have you comment on it. I think we all believe that by 2021, we will have a vaccine. Um, we're working ahead of time with the, as, with the manufacturers, with the pharmaceutical companies to try and actually have manufacturing capability ready to go. So as soon as those trials are finished, the vaccine can go immediately into the manufacturing. And the whole reason we got involved in this vaccine was to make sure there's equitable distribution. Tremendous progress is being made on vaccines. In fact, we have ready to go in terms of uh, transportation and logistics. Uh, We have over two million ready to go if it checks out for safety. So there we have both the federal government represented by President Trump and Melinda Gates, uh, private philanthropy, involved in setting up the manufacturing and distribution. Is it going to take globally a combination of private and uh, public resources in order to do this equitably? Um, I think that that's very likely to be the case. I don't think that, you know, I think, you know, we need to get the one thing to remember is that um, the data from the New York, from New York City suggests very clearly that um, minorities um, and frontline workers were disproportionately affected. Um, we need to be able, in order, to, and the word you use is a very important word, we need to have equitable distribution and vaccination. Uh, we need to ensure that, you know, people who have generally not been uh, included in, in healthcare are in fact included in vaccination. And I do not doubt that a public-private uh, enterprise will be useful. We have 15 minutes left in our conversation while we're talking about vaccinations. uh, Global public health experts have raised the alarm that the focus on COVID-19 has depressed the immunization of uh, diseases such as polio around the globe. What will be the overall effect on public health of that outcome? Well, uh, it will be doubtless unfortunate. Um, uh, I, um, again, have been urging and continue to urge people to seek medical care for um, for diseases and and continue their vaccination. You know, it took a long, long, long time to vaccinate and to ensure uh, immunity against these deadly diseases. And to give up now um, is would be a terrible thing. So, um, as long as uh, these vaccines can be given in places that are safe. Um, And we really need to think about ensuring that those places are safe, that both the vaccine giver and the vaccine recipient does not get accidentally infected by COVID um, and reassuring people that we're taking the best possible precautionary measures uh, is important. It would be a terrible thing to have a vaccine against COVID and realize that in fact, we're losing ground against diseases such as mumps, measles, rubella, polio, Um, and other diseases that we have vaccines for. Here in the United States, where those diseases have been mostly eradicated or contained, we have seen impressive statistics on the depressive uh, amount of care for emergency rooms or for routine medical care that Americans have been taking over the past five months. Uh, What specifically has been the effect on your field, your specialty of cancer over this time? Well, let me just say one thing before you say that. I mean, you know, uh, let's not be cavalier about... Uh, in the United States, that these diseases are on the backswing. Um, y- y- we know of communities where vaccination was 
uh, not appropriately used, uh, and there were outbreaks of measles. I mean, uh, in the United States. So, uh, so I would just advise people not to be cavalier in the United States and think that you know we live in a safe environment and therefore the vaccinations um, are, are are a little more optional or a little more um, I don't know uh, dispensable. So, so let's uh, remove that misconception. But then let's talk a little bit about cancer. We have tried our best to uh, make sure that the cancer care that we uh, have been giving patients uh, has gone on or will go on without uh, uh, with the least amount of disruption and interruption. Now, that's virtually impossible. Um, but so uh, what has happened is that there's been a strong degree of prioritization um, uh, for a while, it was, uh, you know, we, we were not opening new clinical trials, which was obviously a de- there was a delay in opening clinical trials. We're up and uh, we're up again. Um, so we are now reopening clinical trials. But for these routine care of cancer patients, um, we tried, um, you know, everything that we could, including testing them before and after um, uh, we opened a testing facility such that they would not be infected. As you know, many of these patients on chemotherapy are immunocompromised. Um, and, and, and I'm proud to say that um, most of the, uh, m- that, that we avoided, uh, at least at Columbia, uh, we've avoided most of the complications of COVID in immunocompromised chemotherapy patients with cancer. And we have not, in, we have mostly avoided interruption of vital cancer care um, and you know obviously any elective surgeries have been pushed back uh, within the reasons or realms of safety but but aside from that we're now slowly entering a phase in which trials are open patients are back infusions are occurring on time uh, testing is widespread um, and the 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 number of deaths that people have experienced, um, from COVID have not been, um, you know, have not been disheartening. Will there be an impact on cancer research funding? Um, well, I, I would hope not. Um, you know, the, the, the I, I would hope that, that if there's one thing that comes out of this, you know, terrifying tragedy, it is the fact that we uh, recognize once again that, um Science is of crucial importance. Uh, the world is still full of uh, deadly, dangerous diseases that have the capacity to uh, paralyze economies and that the investments, uh, you know, a, a billion dollar investment in um, uh, whatever it might be, screening technologies, uh, surveillance technologies, um, uh, the production of medicines, Will may well lead to trillions of dollars of savings of li- of uh, of money, but also more importantly, obviously of human lives, which are invaluable. No, no, no value can be put on the 128 thousand odd deaths that have occurred in the United States. It is immeasurably invaluable, and so um, I would hope that this would persuade Congress, rather than withdrawing from. Um, international and national uh, bodies rather than uh, throwing suspicion at them and rather than uh, destroying their integrity and their funding, uh, it would in fact increase uh, funding and that would be felt all across the board. 
by the way, I should tell you for just to give you one example, the COVID-19 uh, uh, vaccine platform uh, for T-cell immunity that uh, I'm working on with a company called Myeloid, uh, again, with full disclosure, um, it was initially a cancer, you know, initially devised for cancer. We readapted that because we realized we could, you know, very rapidly induce a, uh, a response, uh, T-cell response, and a very brisk T-cell response and understood that that T-cell response may be very crucial for uh, for, vaccina- uh, for vaccination. So um, that's one example in which there's a, there's a deep level of cross-fertilization between these fields. Uh, drug screening that against COVID depends on very much the same facilities that do drug screening against cancer cells. So, um, so once you, uh, you know, they're not silos. Uh, these are very interrelated uh, and I would imagine, and I would hope, uh, just like I said, just like genetics has really transformed our understanding of COVID, um, uh, a continuation of science funding will, will do the same. How do you expect telemedicine to be transformed as a result of this? Um, one of the major uh, pushes of the governor's committee, uh, Governor Cuomo's committee, is to understand and to uh, explore the use of telemedicine in the future. Um, uh, we have made, there's a subcommittee, I, I serve on that subcommittee as well. Um, telemedicine is very, very much part of this. And we are hoping that one of the things that COVID will uh, remind us of is that without, tele, you know, it's really telemedicine is one of the major ways that we will proceed in the future. Um, it will never be, you know, just to be very clear, Telemedicine is not the same as FaceTiming with your doctor. It requires platforms. It requires platform building. It requires confidence building. It requires a lot of regulation uh, because you have to be able to bill. You have to be able to uh, understand how the visit works. And so uh, my own feeling is that a hybrid model will move forward in which you combine telemedicine with a a face-to-face visit. And maybe that ratio, what that optimal ratio is unclear. Maybe it's two telemedicine visits to one visit uh, in person. Uh, but that is still, we are still figuring that out. But just to remind people, telemedicine is not FaceTime with your doctor. Telemedicine requires platform. It requires integration with the existing medical system, in, integration with the existing medical records. It requires a whole series of things to occur, including a series of regulations uh, by the uh, uh, by, the state and federal governments that allow doctors to have a televisit and to be able to bill for that televisit in a manner that is compatible with the rest of their practice. So, so that's what's happening in, in telemedicine. Throughout our conversation, you have emphasized the importance of hard science and data and research on uh, attacking COVID. But I wrote a quote down that uh, you said, which is that in the short term, it's not the hard sciences, but the social sciences that are our best option. What are you saying there? Um, well, the and this uh, goes right back. It's um, first of all, I don't. I, I, sh- I should say that that uh, I, I I I did not want. To, I do not and did not want to make a distinction between hard sciences and social sciences. Social sciences are just as hard as any other sciences. In fact, they're harder. Uh, I should say the hard sciences and the harder sciences. Uh, by social sciences, I meant really behavioral change. Uh, one of the things that COVID has pointed out to us is that 
We need widespread behavioral change. We need widespread trust um, in science. Um, and behavioral change, as you know, is the hardest thing to one of the hardest things um, to to uh, to enforce or to enact. We knew, just to give you one example from my own field, we knew that cigarettes caused lung cancer in the 1950s and 1960s. But it wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s through a series of behavioral changes, federal and state uh, interventions, as well as social uh, and cultural uh, alterations that we really began to see it in this country uh, a diminution of, um, of smoking um, especially by young people. So, um, uh, so uh, first of all, uh, I don't believe that there's a, a kind of a silo between the hard sciences and the social sciences. But what I really meant by that statement was to say that, that in order to address what is going on with COVID, we very much need to understand how people behave and what the limits of those, uh, you know, how to change that behavior. The same with telemedicine. Um, telemedicine is on one hand, a software platform, but on the other hand, it is also a behavioral platform. People have to be able to use it. Uh, what prevents them from using it? How, why are patients reluctant or they're not reluctant? Is it making their lives easier or harder? I mean, these are behavioral questions, social scientific questions, um, the distribution of the vaccine, whether they, you know, how to get a vaccine out to billion, billions of people um, and how to vaccinate them is a combination of uh, biological sciences, the making of the vaccine, as well as the distribution um, um, and campaign around the vaccine. So um, far be it that these are not, you know, that this is not a hard science, soft science distinction. It is, it is a distinction between sort of, I would say, laboratory science and field science, both of which are very hard. Well, we are out of time as we close here. I want to invite people to find your New Yorker article that you've referenced uh, about COVID-19. And, like, and if they'd like to see, to see other of your work, your book, The Gene, and also your earlier book, The Emperor of All Maladies. Thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.